Alan Mead is a dentist with too much time on his hands and too much recording equipment in his basement. Armed with an obsession to bring entertaining and informative content to the dental world in a way that's never been done before, I give you the Alan Mead Experience. Well, hello and welcome to the Alan Mead Experience. Uh, I'm your host, Alan Mead, dentist, podcaster, and wind chime repair person, actually. And uh, I'd like to introduce my guest host for today, Dr. Bart Schultz. Bart, how are you doing? Very good, Alan. Thanks for having me again. Cool. So Bart's been on a couple times already. As you guys know, Bart's sort of my my BFF. And uh, we talk about a lot of stuff. One of the reasons I was going to start this podcast, because Bart and I pretty much talk all the time about dental stuff. And then the first time we had him on, we didn't talk about anything dental. So that was kind of an interesting uh, interesting way to bring you on. But um, I was just thinking about something. Like, I uh, I have been single parenting one of my kids for the last couple of days. My wife took took uh, Jake camping, so I've had Sean. And Sean is a force of nature in that, um, like, I right before we started the show, I went upstairs. He had uh, an Amazon Echo in his room, like, blasting Rush. And he also had, like, a... He had like a, a toy a carousel like you would see like under a Christmas tree or something that plays Christmas carols. I don't know why Christmas carols, but also blaring at full full volume in his room. He's downstairs in my bedroom watching something on Netflix, <laughs> but those two things are going. And everywhere he goes looks like a tornado hit. So Just, just a little background music for him. Yeah, I'm honestly. I'm in, Okay, so we everyone has heard the show knows that he's on the autism spectrum, and they always talk about kids with autism having having like um you know they're very sensitive to loud noises and all this stuff I'm like actually whatever whatever the opposite of that is seems to be what Sean is but um so but he's like there's so much entropy in my house in other words it's like if you aren't constantly on top of it putting things away cleaning things turning things off all this stuff it's just it's like the house starts to fall apart as and I was sort of laughing I'm like I know that that's kind of a that that's like real life and just about everything. Yeah. My, my children are not on the autistic uh, spectrum and it seems like uh, that is how that is in our house constantly. How my, can they my, get my, so much stuff out? And then like, it's like they have the attention span when well, this is me as well, but they have no attention span. They play with the toy for like two seconds, leave it out, go on to the next thing, turn on the music. I don't understand how they can do it. Well, I, I think their minds are, are moving fast. I, um, so I, I, I noticed that their their laundry consumption is one day is 12 loads of laundry. What is that? That is like you can pretty much constantly be doing laundry and barely keep up. It's amazing. I think there's probably some parallels in the dental office of this this sort of entropy of life, though. Have you ever noticed whenever you want to try and uh, change something like in your office and, and make something uh, – I don't know. Add add a new procedure. Add a new uh, add a new form. Add some kind of documentation. Something like that. And there's just if you aren't constantly pushing it around top of it, it gets thrown to the side. <laughs> the the resistant to to change for people, I think, is is pretty high. Partly because you and I, as dentists, uh, you know, we see the patient. Uh, we kind of make the decisions about how to treat the patient. We do the care. Uh, we may or may not do the charting. Someone's doing the charting, but. We, but once the patient's gone, you know, we're out of the room. And I think uh, in the defense of the of the team members is that there's probably a challenge of 
doing the room, cleaning the room. There's a lot the that goes on that doesn't on, have yeah. our hands on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that new item we want to do or provide is just, just one, more, one thing. more thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I, I think that's all very true. And so the difficulty is getting the team member as involved in that new procedure, new thing as you are. And to be honest, they're never looking at it as a new feature. They're looking at it as a new, new more work, new thing on their list. Even if they're like, part of me goes, well, take them to the course with you, bring them with you. So they get all jazzed about it too. But they, if you're, um, if you're adding a biofilm blaster, like the, like the bioclear guys have, you're adding a biofilm blaster. So you basically every quadrant you work on, you, you stain and blast and make stain and blast and stain and blast. Yeah. Until, until it's all clean. That's great. Well, there's like a couple things. First off, the operatories look like you were spray painting in them with, you know, the, the media, it is a mess. Even, even if you've got the patient, not so messy, uh, it's, it's a mess. And that's one thing. But then the other thing is there's, you got to clean that instrument. You got to, you got to make sure that they, you've sterilized it correctly. You've got to make sure that it's in the, the room for the next one. It's and and that's like all team. I, I'm certain you have to sterilize the tubing yeah. in the cart. I my thing is the I think they should just make the whole room sterilizable. Like have it just be a switch and it all kind of like 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 doors close on it and it's like everything's the, heat sterilized. Yeah, like the Arizona football teams. Uh, uh, turf grass yeah, that the, totally. rolls out on a track outside. Well, to I get think that sun. makes perfect sense. Well, I mean, we, you and I have talked about this a lot of times. I'm heartbroken about. Um, I bought some new electric hand pieces so I could have um, high speed and slow speed without having to switch back and forth. And now that I'm looking at it, it's a matter of, you know, basically we're supposed to be sterilizing. All of according to the CDC, and I do believe that it depends state to state. I haven't looked in Michigan, but I know you said in Minnesota they've they've got requirements that all the we just I, follow the CDC recommendations. Yeah, well, the CDC recommendations um, there can arguably be looked at one way or the other. When I read them, it doesn't seem very arguable. When I read them, it seems like yep, basically the whole handpiece. Like for instance, if you've got a, a hygiene, the whole handpiece needs to be sterilized. You can't including in, including the battery. From the yep. the the sheath from Midwest, even though they market that that system to you, that no, just the just the top part needs to be sterilized. These decisions are made by people who pre- clearly don't work in the in the everyday world where practicality and and I, and I don't want to say profitability, but you, you have to be able to make the care affordable for people too. Well, there's this, there's a huge expense when you are sterilizing the 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 motor of an electric handpiece as well as the handpiece attachments. Well, you know those motors are not going to last nearly as long, and that's that's a uh, huge expense, you know. As you or your staff member unscrew that motor from the the system, if you look at the micro pins, oh, the little teeny and easy, yeah, bat, yeah. The, those are, those will be those will be within a few months those will be broken and and the the motors actually cost more than the motors and the power units sold together yeah, so yeah you're going to spend you know 2000 to 2500 dollars for one of these systems um yearly it's 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 i mean i mean you know, i i bought these hand pieces because i was really excited to um, to have a new polishing protocol for my composites and all and i mean it's a little bit crazy to be able to do that but i love having a slow speed electric along with the high speed electric and i actually use an air uh slow speed as well because the air slow speed i think for disking stuff is better i mean i have like i have three hand pieces sitting out there and it's great i love it and i'm thinking to myself if i'm doing this right i'm going to be paying out the nose for this like to the point where i won't really be able to afford to do that 
<laughs> I'm probably going to have to or, go back to or a, or a direct restoration of filling uh, for our non-dental listeners. Yeah. We'll, we'll cost $4,000. Yeah, well, there like, you go. Yeah. So I had my gallbladder removed a few years ago, and uh, I was pretty conscious as they uh, wheeled me into the – uh, the OR, and since my practice is uh, pretty pretty heavily sedated uh, uh, as clientele, or I guess we sedate a lot of patients, um, a, a pretty good knowledge of how things happen. And so uh, I was critiquing or uh, offering advice to the anesthesiologists, and they, they love that. <laughs> but sure. uh, the OR was it it looked like uh, probably the headquarters of uh, of Apple. Everything was white. All the TV screens were white. There was probably 50 TV screens because there was laparoscopic surgery, but it was just fascinating. And yeah, my surgery was Mm $18,000 for a 45 minute procedure. Mm -hmm. And it was laparoscopic. So there was just, it was, they just, they barely opened you up at all. It it, it was outpatient. I went home that afternoon, but, but the reality is, is that I'm sure everything in that room gets wheeled into some type of processing system of, of sterilization. Um, and you know, dentistry can go that way. I mean, but again, I, I think what does Medicare allow for filling or Medicaid $28? I mean, that, that's sort of the problem. The problem is that there's a requirement for us to do things at a certain level, but, and we're supposed to do it for, for cheap. And there's a point where we can't do it at the level that we're expected to with with the different regulations i mean to to some extent i i know that i don't want to be a whiner but it's just like there's a lot of this stuff that's coming up and i think what happens is a lot of times people just don't more often than not people probably don't realize some of the regulations you know they don't even know and of course that is no defense obviously but but they don't even know like that they're supposed to be doing certain things well all of a sudden I mean, which is fine as long as you don't get caught, you know, as long as as long as mm-hmm. someone doesn't mm-hmm. drop in on you or you don't have a, an employee that reports you to OSHA or whatever. You know, it's like part of knowing all these things is is also making an effort to I, I have to tell you. OK, so HIPAA compliance. The reality is the HIPAA compliance, as much of a pain as it is to kind of keep up on it and stuff like that, you know, make sure that everyone's, you know, taking all the courses and all. Actually, that's probably the least you know, the, the least difficult thing to make sure you're doing what they ask you to do compared, so, to, compared so to like, like the sterilization requirements in the, in the, the, you're supposed to have passwords for HIPAA compliance on every computer and the passwords are supposed to be changed. Uh, I, I, I don't know the, the, the specific language, but on a frequency, I don't, I don't know that I don't know that that's required though. See, that's the thing. <laughs> the thing about HIPAA is I think that their requirements versus their, um, well, so you're supposed. You're, I, I actually think it's a requirement. You're supposed to change your passwords at a frequency that makes the 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 computer safe, and you and a strength of a password that makes sense. So the the question is, well, God, I don't like subjectivity uh, and ambiguity that they get to determine afterwards. Well, your password now wasn't. That's, that sucks. If they don't give you the rules and then they yeah, but they, but they tell me I have to have an eight character. Uh, six number password and I can make that happen. But, but the reality is HIPAA was certainly devised to help protect patients privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really what it is, is just one more government regulatory agency that after the fact, and I, and I know you and I've talked about this, that ah, dentists don't get punished by HIPAA and nothing like that ever happens. And I think that's probably not true. Uh, I think that uh, now, and maybe the, the, the punishments, 
are so severe for people who have been really just been really blatantly dumping patients identity information, you know, out in the, the internet. When I had my gallbladder surgery, I had to visit like 12 doctors to get to a surgeon. Uh, every time I was, I, I found it interesting is, uh, I was left in the, oh, in the, the doctor's offices with a computer. Um, and I, I have no idea how computers really work, but, uh, there was a USB port, uh, <laughs> sitting right every next to me sure. on every one of them. I don't know that you could get into that computer by that USB port, but I, but I wonder, um, you know, so, you know, my, my physician actually each, each person has their own laptop that they carry with them, mm-hmm. um, which is to say they don't have, their operatories are not wired at all. It's all done on a Wi-Fi, Um, and it's, it, so they don't have a computer in their operatory at all, which is when you think of first off what a pain that would be. But secondly, mm-hmm. I guess it, literally the appointments are half or more of the time being spent with them inputting stuff into their computer, which I'm sure generates a really great, super detailed note, but it also generates insurance codes. Let's be honest. That's what, that's mm-hmm. what it's about anyhow. But, but I will say that, you know, dentists spend a lot of time wiring up their operatories with computers. And I'm seeing now in my physician's office, there's no wires. And I, I suspect that's done exactly so that people can't mess with the computers. That's probably a, a one more HIPAA thing that you're talking about. The fact that you're left in there with a computer. Well, they're, you're never left in there with a computer in my, my doctor's office because they carry them with them. Right. I never even thought about that until right this second. I wonder if that's sort of built into the system. But, I, you know, that's HIPAA doesn't scare me. None of it scares me unless unless you've got you know someone pointing the finger that you're not doing it right and it is you know I, I I do think most dentists try and do their best and I my thing is at what point will someone just stand up and go this is not reasonable <laughs> this this is not this is this is too this is too much it costs too much to deliver care because these these hoops that we're jumping through what I want to know is like how effective are the things that we're required to do at actually you know doing what they claim to in other words. So if you don't do those things, was was patient care worse because of it? Performed, yeah. Did did we did we not? Did the dentistry fail? I, I mean, clearly, I want to sterilize instruments. I want the top notch equipment. I want a lot of these things to to work well. But I but I also want to be practical. Truthfully, the the reality is is that you and I understand sterilization. Or I guess we're we're responsible for sterilization in the practice. I mean, we're on the hook for it. I'm not sure I could sterilize instruments. Myself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I, I'm sure I could. I'd have to. Well, I'd I, have to. I have to read the manual. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know how to do it. Would you and I know the protocol of the spore test and how often the spore test? Now, I we we talk about this, mm-hmm. but we don't do it every day. So, um, I, I don't. I, I just, you know, honestly, I, I trust the team to know this stuff. Probably not the right approach on my end. Like, probably. well, let me ask you: even if you really knew sterilization well and you did the spore test. And and you monitored that and you verified every day and you had a signature by you and your your assistant. Um, what happens if you have another team member who just doesn't sterilize instruments? <laughs> they just choose not to. I, I had an employee who embezzled money. She, she just didn't go to the bank. Yeah. I mean. Well, I mean, uh-huh. think, think of the efficiency. Save, yeah, you, right. Saved you money because she didn't charge you the hours of going to the bank. <laughs> we have uh, we have biological strips also in the state of Minnesota, I think we have to use for surgical or implant procedures that have to be in there. Uh, we have tape that can't have any lead. Uh, used to be that the tape uh, on the bags, it was an indicator tape, had lead. Of course, couldn't throw that into the garbage because that was a hazardous waste. Um, okay, so now now we have, you know, 
14 different indicators of sport tests, you know, again, what if a staff member just decided not to do it? Seriously. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, again, this is, this is a really. Rick's, I don't, Rick's, go ahead, Rick's office. Yeah. Rick's office used to uh, a segue into this Rick's office. Uh, and, and Rick, and now, you know, Rick, but sure. uh, he had an employee who her job was to do uh, unclaimed and uh, or unpaid insurance claims. Uh, and she would rectify that, that information. Her job was to, to, uh, uh, Figure out uh, unpaid insurance claims. So mm-hmm. uh, get them paid, uh, get the information, the insurance company once again. And I think what they found out was uh, her last six months, I think, at the job, because she was planning on leaving. <laughs> she just was throwing all that paperwork in the trash. Oh, hey, you know. Uh, yeah. So so they found out like two years later that all these unclaimed, uh, unpaid uh, insurance claims had been never worked on. You know, so again, a correlation of. You and I are responsible not to complain, not to bitch about things, but there's so many things that are just uh, impractical or, or I guess. Uh, One of the things that frustrates me is, is that as a, <laughs> as a, as an associate or whatever, you don't even like there's, it's hard to tell someone who doesn't own a practice, all of the things that will need to be done. Like I still am coming up with stuff. I've been doing this for almost 20 years and I'm like, oh wow, we were supposed to do that. You know, <laughs> like. Like, and I mean, I, I will say that um, this might be where a management company really has it over over the individual person because they've already got a lot of this stuff systematized down. You know, this is where the, the big group practices where the dentist just comes in and does dentistry. They can make this more efficient, I'm assuming. I, I think you're right, except that. It, so I kind of think about numbers as a dental office is if overhead is 60 to 70 percent, that leaves you 40 to 30% of the office collections essentially for your income. Um, so the worker dentist tends to make about half of that. Mm-hmm. And the owner dentist tends to make the other half. Um, so if you had a company that didn't own your practice, but you, you hire to do your systems and do your hiring and all that, they take the ma- they take the management part of it. I, I got, I got to think it's four to five to $10,000 a month. Uh, to have them do that I, on the other would, hand on the other hand could that company and, and by company I, i'm talking dso i mean whether whether you're talking an aspen versus a, a heartland which is uh, heartland literally like you can't look at a dental office from the outside and know that it's a heartland practice they don't brand their practices as heartland I mean, as far as i know but what i will know what i do know is those practices yeah. produce tons more because they're they're super efficient at a getting treatment accepted, but also B all these all that stuff's taken care of, so the dentist can just focus on on dentistry. It's it, so yes, they make they actually make more money, so that piece of the pie that the that the worker dentist gets is much larger. And that might make sense, right? I mean, I'd uh, have to look at it, but it, I mean, you know, it, it it frustrates me sometimes. You know, as an owner, I I don't like I don't have big problems with this. However sometimes big problems come knocking on your door and you don't even realize it. Right. It's, it's, and I think it's unfortunately, uh, by the time you realize that there's a problem, it's too late. You know, when, when you've got, Oh, I don't know, patient complaints or stuff like that. But I guess I want to, I want to go back to what we were talking about originally. So how is it that like, as the owner dentist, you have to be looking at this entropy that's happening in your practice all the time. Like, the stuff that's falling out, the stuff that's not getting done, you actually have to a know that it's not getting done and b you have to be the guy who's constantly pushing. The easiest way to look at it is when you're adding something new, but to be honest, you should probably be do- like 
how many times how many times have you like gone and seen that that there are claims that haven't been sent like you were talking about with Rick's office where you know or or you'll look at you complain because the collections are the collections numbers seem low percentage wise in any given you know month or two week period or whatever you mention it to the the front desk and all of a sudden they're collecting like crazy you know what I'm saying <laughs> they're yeah yeah I I I think oh wait most, he noticed that's kind of what they that's right yeah maybe maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I have to take less cigarette breaks. I, I think I think maybe I'm like most dentists is uh, is that that we're really good dentists. We're good at dentistry. We're mm-hmm. good at convincing people to do care. Uh, but the other avenues of the business sense were not great, and we tend to probably I don't know if we bury our heads in the sand. Oh, for uh, sure I do. For sure. But I do. you know, I mean, and and by the way, dentistry is a full time job. Mm-hmm. At you know five o'clock, you have to you you feel like you need to go home and go to Boy Scouts with your son, take mm-hmm. him to lacrosse practice, you know? And so some of those other things just get, you know, put to the, to the back burner. I'm making enough. I'm doing where that is. That know. is the thing too. What ha- now, now mind you, this is probably going to change with the younger dentists because there will, they will probably never be able to say I'm making enough because they're the debt that they come in with. Even mm-hmm. once they resolve that debt, eventually my guess is that being in that deep of debt is going to be some amount of post-traumatic stress disorder for them. Uh, and this is this will be tested out with the new dentists that are coming out with four and five hundred thousand dollars in debt. You know? Yeah. Well, l- listen, they're they're not only, but frequently the ones that buy practices quickly buy practices and a dental practice is two hundred to a million dollars. You mm-hmm. know, that's kind of the, the mm-hmm. range. Mm-hmm. And frequently they're all buying a bunch of extra ancillary things of sure. you know CT scans, Cerex. Uh, yeah. So um, I think I think for a lot of people debt is not a not a mental concern well i think um, i think younger dentists that's probably where they are but and, and maybe maybe having four hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt maybe that the reality is you go hey what's what's another four hundred thousand well i suspect there's a there's a mentality to that except once you start seeing that monthly nut that that becomes a i mean if you're not making the monthly nut then all of a sudden you know what do you do i guess my thing is that i think a lot of dentists kind of like you and i were sort of mid-career dentists were for me, if I'm doing enough, I'm okay because I don't have a bunch of debt sitting over me right now. You know that makes me nervous like that. On the other hand, you know I I don't probably I don't uh, treatment plan as aggressively as I could per se, and, and within an ethical you know framework. Sometimes I'm I'm more likely to let something sit and watch versus jump on it. And that is that is clearly that's not wrong or right by any by anyone's uh, you know. There's a lot of dentists who would argue about different ways. That's all fine and good, but. I also don't have the financial like, like need requirement. I don't. I don't have that that voice in the back of my head going. You know, you got that student loan just sitting there. You know, with with the amount that they have, and, and we also had when we got out in nineteen ninety seven. We also had like super low interest rates. Like we didn't realize it, but the, you know, I refinanced my like two something. Okay, well they're like at six or seven something now, and on a much larger amount. So they mm-hmm. can make these huge payments, and they're barely touching the principal. Yeah. So they have to come out kicking ass. Essentially, it's you know they're they're it's it's it freaks me out a little bit. And I, it seems like on the podcast I always come back to this, and maybe it's because I am more like there are some people like you said who just debt doesn't bother them at all, and they just know they just have to make that much more. And once you make enough, you're you don't have to worry about the debt. But I I'm I'm of the mind that I don't know that I ever could feel that comfortable with it. I and I think um I, it's just the way I am. I'm a cheapskate that way. We have a mutual friend who uh, um. 
buys uh, new or newer vehicles frequently. Uh, and I so want a new truck or a new SUV and clearly could could afford anything I wanted. Um, but I'm but I'm frugal. I'm I'm a I'm thrifty. Um, you know, and he buys cars, never really paying off the debt from the the from trade the lap, car, yeah, from, yeah, exactly. And just buys the new car. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, how do you how do you wrap your mind around it? But I actually think that's just. It's it's eating the elephant concept, just mm-hmm. one bite at a time, right? Just well, well I just and if it's a monthly and it's a and it's an auto auto uh, payment. Never right out of the bank, it. I could never see it. Yep, you know, yep. just gone. Literally, and, we have we our van we finance and it is an auto payment. And I literally, you know, when I see it, I see it when I'm when I'm doing my books at the end of the month. I'm like, oh yeah, paid for the van, good. Um, <laughs> so the reality is, we could probably do that without. But but like I said, I've been driving a paid off Ford Fiesta back and forth to work for a long time, which is not. Uh, not the dentist's car, you know. That's like that's like the 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 struggling dental assistant's car, <laughs> not the dentist car. But yet, I guess I, I mean that's not something I put a bunch of, of Johnny hope. Depp's. Johnny Depp's probably going to have to drive a car like that someday. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, so if you, no matter what you make, you kind of spend it. Uh, our mutual friend's new car. Uh, I went for a ride with him the other day. I drove it, and it's a it's a cool car. Mm-hmm. It's a cool SUV, and it does things. You know, uh, I'm. I don't know that it drives itself, but it it certainly has a lot of those bells and whistles. And yeah, yeah I want that car. But well, I also it's go, funny too because I think you, some people put a premium on on the the this feels good. I this the benefits of this car are awesome, and all the stuff that it can do is worth paying extra for. That's essentially what buying that car means. And and you know what, I could talk myself into that easily too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, luckily, I don't look at that stuff very often. Says the guy who just bought electric hand pieces for slow speed so he can polish composite a little better. But, but I mean, like, I guess it depends on what floats your if boat. If you were, if, if you and I had to sit in our car all day long and take our customers to and from uh, business arrangements, it, it would be more of a piece of equipment. But for you and I, or as dentists, you know, a vehicle is just a, a tool that we use yeah. to move ourselves or our family around. So my Bluetooth, uh, my Bluetooth audio, in my car wasn't working yesterday afternoon. I was taking Sean to the pool and it wasn't working. And I mean, there's a lot of things that could go wrong with that car that I wouldn't, <laughs> that I wouldn't look at scratches or dents or whatever. I wouldn't but even look at the Bluetooth. You. I was like, I'm taking this to the garage tomorrow. I can't live like this. I'm serious. I was like, cause I listen to, I listen to podcasts or audiobooks or music from my phone all the time. And I, honestly, I had a, the last car I had, had a Bluetooth feature that did conk out. Like after I owned the car for three years, I drove that car with headphones on, Bluetooth headphones on for like two years uh, just because I didn't I didn't get it fixed, but I couldn't live without the Bluetooth function. I, I wonder if there's a I wonder if there's an automobile violation with having headphones. Oh, for sure. Right? Against, according to my brother-in-law, it's, it's against the law in Michigan. So I'm yeah, but I'm an outlaw that way. I'm, I'm a Blue, yeah. Bluetooth outlaw. That's what I am. So, I mean, hey, you were probably part of that. You were probably talking to me on the headphones. Yes. So you, yes. Were, you were an accomplice to the key, that. The, key, the, the, the conspiracy. Exactly. All right, so I want to ask something else. So this is what you and I talked about this yesterday, and I thought it would make a really, good, um, a really good conversation. So how – I wanted to talk a little bit about informed consent, like the best way that you can make sure patients understand the treatment that you're offering them, make good choices, and – the frustrating thing that that makes me laugh because it happens more often than I'd like to admit, but the the classic thing when the patient comes in 
after you've already, like, let's say you've prepped the crown or, <laughs> or you've placed the implant and they come in and they have no idea what you're doing. Like, no, like, and, and, and this is a patient that you spent some, probably some time explaining the treatment plan to, and they come in and they just, they just are clueless. They have no idea. And you're just sort of like, wow, like. Like if if this patient were called in front of a uh, in front of the board of dentistry, I'd be in deep trouble because I as much as I explained, the patient had no idea. So what do you think about that? What's your a? How often does that happen? And, and doesn't it kind of freak you out? And b? What's what do you think the best way to 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 get an informed consent for a patient is? I know I know your answer, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I'm just what do you think about that? So in my office, it, it is maybe a little different than most of our colleagues. Is that I have an in, I have a written uh, and signed informed consent for every procedure we do, uh, for a crown seat, for a crown prep, for a buildup, uh, for whitening, for nitrous, for sedation, uh, for oral surgery extractions, for removing an implant, for restoring an implant, uh, for dentures, partials, fluoride trace. Uh, so each, each one of these things has a written explanation of what, does, what you're doing and, the, now, and the, the options for, you know, of no treatment and other treatment options, all that stuff. Yeah, and in the CEREC, the CEREC, uh, like, okay, let, let's look at a, and I don't think the consent is for a CEREC, the consent is for a, a porcelain restoration sure. in layer on lay. Um, and there is frequently, we make these consents up the night, the day before mm-hmm. we, they're in the computer, we print them up with the patient's name and date. Um, and so if it's a, if it's a number 19 build up and crown, uh, the build up and crown are in that, that that whole consent paperwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they have nitrous um, um, and, and an implant and sedation that day, there are those four separate consents. Um, we, we have a verbal uh, discussion in a operator or in a consultation room for every patient mm-hmm. where uh, every new patient, every patient for complicated care, every uh, existing patient for complicated care. And we go over their photographs, their radiographs, uh, their records. And we talk about things uh, I kind of use, I I put teeth in boxes. I learned this at the Spear Center. Uh, Box one is a tooth that needs to be fixed now. It's cracked. It has a hole. It hurts. Box two is a tooth that it's okay. It's probably going to have some issues in the future and we should make some some plans for it. And box three is a tooth we fix because we don't like the way it looks. Uh, and so I kind of put all the teeth in those particular boxes and, you know, it's really a box two, but it's moving towards a box one. And, and truthfully, the hope is, is that if you're fixing two, uh, which is a box one and tooth number You've told three, me about this box thing a bunch of times and I love yeah, it. And then every yeah. time I go, I love that. I should start using, it. I forget. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll email you the, the paperwork, but so we, and then that gets scanned into their chart. Uh, uh, we work up the treatment plan or the staff work up the, the, and, and truthfully, they agreed that they want to do this treatment. Um, and then it's really about money, right? It's about how we fit this in their budget, their insurance coverage. And I leave the consultation room, they work that up and then we move ahead with, and we, and we talk about alternatives, a, a composite versus a, or, a a direct restoration, as I like to say, and an indirect restoration. We talk about the benefits, pros and cons of those. And then uh, they get scheduled for whatever treatment they feel like they want to do. Or maybe they don't. They come back for their hygiene schedule uh, six months later. And it might be four years down the lane that that that, that, that tooth fractures or breaks and they're ready to to, to make the repair or, or fix it definitively. That's, that's, and, go ahead. I'm sorry. And so they get a consent form for all of that treatment. Um I find it frequently to your original question that uh, 
Patients have no idea what we're talking about, even though they've signed this information. They've had a verbal consent uh, that day of the procedures. They've had a consultation because they're not dentists. And uh, sure. even though I think I do a good job of really talking about dentistry in non-dental terms, um, I think people glaze over and don't pay attention to a lot of this stuff. A couple, question, couple questions that come up in my mind that, that I have to ask you and myself and all this stuff first. Do patients look at all those consents and just go, whatever, doc, and sign it? And and so clearly the concept is that they've read through, understand their treatment, they're signing this, but but what they're really doing is, okay, one more stupid piece of paper, let's just sign this dumb thing and get on with it. A, that's the first question. Second question, how important is it that the patient knows exactly what's happening versus that they know, you know, we're treating this because the tooth hurts, we're treating this because the tooth is broken, that sort of thing. So I, I wonder how important it is uh, informed consent is for specific specific knowledge of the procedure versus why we're doing it and and you know that sort of thing. I don't know. I'm not I, sure. I joke with the patient as we're giving him this paperwork. Oh, the government the government's here to protect us. Uh, I joke. Now I I clearly wouldn't need an informed consent. It's not the standard of care to have an informed consent for every procedure. Um, but what's the standard of care? Uh, that's just set by. It really doesn't matter until you're in trouble with the trouble. board. That's the thing. yeah. I mean, w- w- what I mean. So a surgery because they're all surgeons. Uh, what type of surgery? Um, why is why is restoring an implant less of an informed consent than placing the implant? So I just because I couldn't get my mind around in my practice of what was important. Um, I just felt like let's just let's just just get everyone do consents, and now we just don't for cons- for. Con- forget the consent forms. Everyone gets that. Do you that have thing. the assistants go over the consent or do you go over the consent? We, we So they give them the consent. They start to read it. I come in. I talk about uh, uh, what the consent entails. I talk about, so if I'm doing third molar extractions, uh, I, I usually do this with their person who's bringing them, usually their parents. Uh, um, I've talked about some of the big risks for wisdom teeth extractions, you know, Possible uh, dystesia of the nerve, uh, dry sockets, pain, swelling, um, things like that. Uh, and and then I go back, I talk to the patient if they're an adult, uh, have that same conversation, um, and then ask them if they have any other specific questions about the consent. So uh, actually, both the assistant uh, or the hygienist and the doctor is going over these consents with them. I know, I know that it's not like you, you've dealt with lawsuits or anything like this. I would love to know in, in a court of law after someone decides they're going to sue you over something. Mind you, I don't, I don't know how that even really works. But like, it, can you point to an informed consent signed by the patient and, the, and whoever is judging this case goes, oh, well, they knew. and that's, Or can they say, well, that's fine. They signed an informed consent, but they still really didn't know. I wonder how... How binding it is. I, I know you don't necessarily well, have a, a, I, yeah, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but I think a lawyer would tell you just that. Uh, well, you know, because at $650 an hour, they need to take that time to sure. That's right. To, 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 to really look at those details. But I would say I have heard that a patient signing a consent form cannot sign as right away to sue. Mm-hmm. So I, I think anyone can sue um, or make a complaint and you just going to have to defend your actions, mm-hmm. whether you win or not, it's still cost stomach lining and probably oh legal God. defense totally. money. Right. And I, I mean, I, I use informed consents in certain areas. I definitely don't for, for typical restorative stuff. Like I don't go to the, to the length that you do by any means. Um, I, I do think, I think it's interesting 
So, like, so let me go back to my oh, let me go, go ahead, back to my my, my go, uh, about informed consent because I because I brought this up to people. So I had my gallbladder removed. My my one and only mm-hmm. adult uh, uh, medical Experience interaction. In the, yeah, in serious yeah, medicine, um, sure. At no time uh, from my initial visit with a, a, a general doctor to the ultrasound to the gastroenterologist to the surgeon uh, consult to the surgery day. Did anyone talk about informed consent of any care sedation? No one talked about general anesthesia. No one talked about, I I found out that morning that it would be general anesthesia. I thought it would be conscious sedation. Again, I'm pretty familiar with this. Um, And it it may be a little bit more concerned just because general anesthesia has a little bit more risk. And and what, what I found out later from, from people, the nurse anesthetists that come to my office is that, they can't numb your tummy up. They can't have you move. You, you got to really be general anesthesia sedated just because they need you in that deeper level of sedation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but no one had a discussion. No one talked about medications and about risks. Uh, they did ask. You me didn't have a history and physical before you did it, did you? Uh, in fact, uh, 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 I really pushed to have this surgery quickly because the pain was getting excruciating. Sure. Um, uh, I went to the surgical consult and, uh, the surgeon who was a great surgeon, um, um, said, well, we can get you in, you know, next month. And I said, listen, I don't think I can make it to next month. I need, I need to get this done now. Can you do it today? And he's like, no, but how about, I said, cause if you don't do it this week, I think I got to go somewhere else. And, uh, so I kind of pushed to his, uh, income producing abilities. And, uh, he said, I can get you in Thursday. So I showed up Thursday uh, the nurse said, well, he hasn't done your history and physical. And uh, and so, you know, they, the hospital or the surgical suite was concerned about that. And so he was 20, 20 minutes to maybe an hour late to his appointment. And I reminded him, do the history and physical doctor. And uh, he chuckled. Uh, and uh, and I was given some first said wheel to the OR and sedated. Uh, and, and, of course, the history physical was done. But that really has to be kind of done a little bit as an interview with the patient. So, uh, so typically no, that's no, what you'd expect. Yeah. And there were two questions asked of me. Uh, um, maybe I would say consent wise. Uh, uh, did I want a blood transfusion if I needed one? Okay. And you know, I was going to make some type of joke, but I didn't you probably know what I found it funny. But so um, <laughs> uh, I said, sure, I guess. And then they said, if, if something would happen and you would be put on a ventilator, um, who would you like to make the decision about turning the ventilator off? And I said, um, <laughs> my mom, not my wife. Don't, don't call my wife, call my mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So, so can we uh, just pull that now? Can we just turn yeah, that switch now? Yeah, he's, right. he's really looking better. Now just pull the switch. She's, okay. she's far better off financially. Uh, if I'm probably dead than if I'm alive. So <laughs> no, that's why you don't sleep so well anymore lately. Uh, I mean, okay. So here's the thing now. Okay, so they didn't. We go through all these hoops for informed consents on on things that are arguably much smaller deal than what what they're doing. Do you think it's because they know enough about you? You're hooked up to enough machines; they can tell stuff about you. They don't really need to know. The bottom line is, you know what? You filled out a health form. If you were diabetic, they would know, and they would still probably. You know, you're at a point where they kind of have to treat you. They're not gonna. They're not going to look at you and say your blood pressure is a little too high. We're not going to take your gallbladder out. You know, we're not there. I wonder if their their idea about informed consent. This is great informed consent. He needs this done, and we're going to do it. You know, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. The, the, the I guess the original question is: the hospitals are certainly more 
are different than dentistry, but it is medical care. Having your gallbladder out is an elective procedure. It's not required. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure having emergency. Well, it's a lot of surgery. stuff that's elective, but if you're telling him you're you're hurting bad enough, you have to do this. It's, it moves sort of moves sort of into less yeah. elective kind of stuff. I think I, I think the guy's intention was to do the history and physical. I think he was an, an hour behind schedule, and you know, just as we make human errors of just hey, it'll be okay. And I, and maybe his visit with me for the twenty minutes during the consultation, he was comfortable making those those determinations of what my history and physical was. And, and um, I mean, everything went well. You were, you weren't unhappy with the care or anything like that. But it is funny to see, oh, man, when you are the patient. Uh, whether it's in a dental office getting your teeth cleaned or 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 actual medical stuff or whatever, it it is very eye opening to be sure. Like, well, well, dentistry is certainly different the way we treat patients, significantly different uh, than than way we treat get treated as patients in a in, a, in the medical sector and the medical uh, the medical stuff. Um, I'm not going to lie to you they 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 do not have a soft touch the same way no, most dentists no. Actually, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to taste of of what you know the the lack of soft touch is, just watch your local oral surgeon work on patients. Um, and, and God love your oral surgeons, but you guys, you guys lost that when you went into residency because, frankly, you got to get that tooth out. Whereas, you know, like I look at some of the, st- I, I'll watch my buddies who do surgery. I'm like, oh my God, they are really. I mean, they first off, they they get teeth out fast, and secondly. They push real hard, <laughs> like, and most of the time, I think it's because the patient's sedated, so the the patient doesn't really even know, and that that's fine. But I tend to think if I if I did that on a non sedated patient, they would they would probably call the cops, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, well, it's a, it's assault. I was taking a course at a uh, college once uh, on I don't know if it was an oral surgery course or sedation course, but uh, this oral surgery uh, resident was working on an older patient who they didn't want to sedate. He came there for sedation. Uh, they were concerned about, uh, I think they were concerned though. about his heart. Yeah. And so we're not going to sedate you, but we can take the tooth under, under local. And he was like, okay. And, uh, they gave him some, a block, which I thought was probably not performed well. They didn't give a lingual block. They didn't give a buckle. And they also injected and really fast, fast. Yeah. And, uh, and of course they kept working on the tooth and he kept saying that hurts. Oh no, you're numb. You're fine. And, uh, and the whole procedure, I'm thinking, they increased his blood pressure much higher sure than the sedation. Did. Sure they and, did. And, and, and first, they just basically broke the tooth off. Here, let's just break everything. Yeah. And then let's just. And then we'll, it, then it, we'll it, lay a giant it, flap and start drilling yeah, on yeah, bone. Yeah, yeah. I, I, thought, I thought it was far more brutal uh, than it needed to be. I sedate a lot of patients um, for surgery, third molar extractions, and, and I'm not an oral surgeon. But my treatment to those patients, whether they're awake or sedated, it's is the, the same. same. Yeah, no, it's I agree. Same. I agree. That's that's actually really good. To, so I guess my the to to finish up this conversation about informed consent, we both need to quit dentistry, go to law school, and then we just need to start suing people because they don't have proper informed consent, whether it's medical medical or dentistry. I think that's I think that's where we need to go. We, that's where the big money is for sure. I, I don't know that it's big money, but I think as a lawyer, you you uh, you look at things in life. Uh, in your career and your personal life differently than you might if you were a non-lawyer. And so I, I think that's so true that my children are 10 years old. I have a set of twins, a boy and a girl, and they are convinced, manipulated, and brainwashed 
into believing that uh, they have to be lawyers. They can do anything in life. They can be dentists. They can be uh, But teachers. law school comes first. They have to go to law school. In fact, I only pay for college if they go to law school. Uh, my, my daughter was at a hockey tournament and a couple parents are like, well, so what do I want to be when you grow up? And my daughter said, well, my dad says I have to be a lawyer, uh, <laughs> but, but, but I don't have, he says, I don't have to practice uh, law. So I'm going to be a hairdresser too. Hairdresser lawyer. I mean, I, there's, I'm clearly there's probably lawsuits to be had in hairdressing. The nice thing is generally, it generally it grows back. Exactly. Except but, for, except for me. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm bald. Exactly. All right, Bart Schultz, thank you for spending some time with me today. We'll have you on the show again, and uh, we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for having me. If you have any questions or comments about this show, hit me up on email, alan at the Alan Mead Experience. Go on iTunes, give us a review, give us five stars. We're still, still trying to grow this podcast, and thank you very much for listening to the show. 